Welcome to the Rule Number One podcast. It's it's been a while. We haven't said that in a while, have we? We haven't said welcome together like that in probably a good six to eight weeks. Yeah, I think so. A, a long old time it feels. Um, quite nice to have a break from you, Rob. To be fair, um, a nice Christmas break and and the rest. Have you been up to anything exciting? No, nah, mate. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, I was back in Ireland, um, back seeing the family and stuff. Um, I nearly didn't make it because I caught. COVID. I thought I was invincible. Um, but I mean, I deserved it. I, I deserved it. I was going out every night. So, I mean, I was asking for it. Do you know well, what I mean? I, f- I feel like there was a time towards uh, towards Christmas time where everybody in London just thought they were all invincible and we were never going to get corona. And then um turns out everybody in London got COVID. So you got it as well, didn't you? I did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I um, ma- managed to catch it while out at a party. Um, oh, was Boris then, Johnson there or was it in Downing Street? There was wine and cheese involved. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Um, but then promptly headed home and... Um, well, after my girlfriend told me to isolate in, in our bedroom um, on my own for, well, essentially what was going to be 10 days before Christmas, I promptly told her to head back up north to see her parents then. So she wouldn't ruin Christmas for her family, but also Aww. mostly, <laughs> mostly, yeah, before you do the R, actually mostly it was because I wanted free reign over the rest of my flat and oh my be able to leave one room. Helen, if I'm, you're listening, he does really love you. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we have uh, we have got so much planned in terms of podcasts this year. We have got an unbelievable lineup of guests over the next few months to share with you. And the first, I guess, we're kicking off with is a roundtable discussion around diversity and inclusion. Yeah, it's a hugely important topic. I think not just uh, at the moment, there's a lot of buzzwords and people talking about diversity and inclusion without really understanding what it is. Um, To toot our own horn a little bit, we've been doing plenty of training around this, a lot of seminars, a lot of guest speakers, uh, Oyster in general. What we really wanted to do is actually go and speak to a few of our clients out there and, and really understand from their point of view what's being done at the moment within diversity and inclusion and what people could be doing better. Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, naturally at Oyster, we, you know, we work across both the private and public sector. And I think it's fair to say that the public sector is certainly more advanced and further forward in terms of their diversity and inclusion. And the private sector could learn a lot from the public sector. And our guests today come from a variety of local authorities, housing associations and other public sector bodies. And we're excited to share their thoughts and experiences with you. But on that, sadly, I'm actually going to bow out because you're being joined by a fabulous guest host for this episode. I absolutely am. Um, Rob decided he couldn't be asked because diversity and inclusion isn't that important to him. Whoa. Surprise, surprise. Um, or not. I was actually on holiday at the time. <laughs> uh, but this this episode, we have the lovely Jazz joining us as a guest host. She's one of the, well, she is an associate director at Oyster, specialising mostly across the public sector. And she's my line manager, so she can do absolutely no wrong. <laughs> So in this episode, we're joined by a variety of characters, um, including our very own Hannah Clarks, our head of people, as well as Gary, Natalie and Kieran, who I'll let introduce themselves properly because I won't be able to do them justice. Um, And you can't remember where they work. (laughs) (laughs) That too. It was a while ago when we recorded this one. So welcome to the podcast and enjoy. Let us know what your thoughts are around diversity and inclusion in the comments section below. Welcome to the Rule Number One podcast. We've got a really exciting episode today, our most ambitious one yet, where we've got four guests in total and a special guest host. So I thought we'd kick things off by going around and introducing everybody in the room. 
Hannah, do you want to kick us off as a yeah, returning wh- guest? why not? Um, so I'm Hannah. I am head of people at Oyster Partnership. And my role, and I guess why I've been invited onto the podcast is I'm responsible for all the internal hires here at Oyster, but also responsible for the employee engagement. So looking after everybody that joined us and making sure that we are making everyone feel included and valued when they are at Oyster. Very much our moral compass. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Did you jump in, Kieran? <laughs> Hi, I'm Kieran Bopal. I'm a people and culture manager and have worked in the HR space for approximately six years. I am people passionate through and through. More recently, have spent some time really focusing on diversity and belonging and what that really means in a workplace. So really excited to be here and certainly share some of my thoughts and experiences today. Great. Very excited to have you. Hi, um, I'm Natalie D'Souza. So I've had a long-running relationship with Oyster over the years as a, a client. But I, So I've set up my own uh, consultancy, which is called True Parity uh, Consulting, and it's a diversity consultancy. So it looks at working with clients to help them with their recruitment processes, etc. look at their diversity policies, which we're probably talking about today in their strategies, but also looking at leadership and how you can actually generate really good, diverse and inclusive uh, management or leadership from your organisation from within. At the moment, I'm working with TFL as a change transformation consultant with, through my organisation, but with them. Um, and I have a really vested interest in their DNI work across our current team, which is collaboration team, but across the wider organisation, it's huge. So it's hard to, you can't necessarily grab onto everything, but for the small part we're grabbing onto, it's really working. And we're also working in collaboration with the GLA, the Mayor's Office, the Great London Authority as well. And yeah, it's going great guns. I think today I'd be really interested to hear what everyone else is doing and, and working on and you know, kind of come away with some really good tips and ideas and hopefully impart some really good information too. Yeah, get some great insight into things. Gary? Hi, I'm Gary Backus and I'm a business change specialist um, with over 20 years of working across public and private sectors, helping change and transformation across different organisations. And I've been through it since the 90s. One of the key things that I think really works in change programmes is inclusion and respecting and appreciating diversity because change programmes don't work without its people on board and going through that journey. So I've learned a lot of lessons and I'm really happy to be here today to be able to share some of those and then participate in some of the discussions. Fantastic. Excited to have you here. Jazz, do you want to jump in as our special guest host? As your special guest host, absolutely. So I'm Jazz. I'm one of the associate directors here at Oyster. And whilst my role isn't solely around diversity and inclusion, it is an area that I find really interesting. And I think, especially in the past couple of years where I've been involved in recruiting for Oyster, the conversations that applicants are having around diversity and inclusion just shows that it is something that is now especially been spoken about maybe more than it has done in the past. And with an industry like recruitment, where typically there is a type, hearing applicants talk about how impressed they are with the diversity they see at Oyster, I think just highlights why it needs to be spoken about more in this sort of format. Absolutely. So I'm sure everybody's probably guessed by now that we're focusing primarily on diversity and inclusion in this episode. <laughs> Enjoy that we didn't say that at the start. Yeah, we yeah. I realise right I left in. that out. Um, <laughs> as you can tell, we're very well structured here. We want to go through a, a whole load of things, I think, today. But um, I know, Jazz, you wanted to kick things off with a couple of questions for everybody. 
Yeah, so I guess starting off, and you know, I think everyone I've spoken to has really got different answers to this. To you guys, what does diversity and inclusion mean? What what does it involve? Quite a broad question there, I know. But so, you know, <laughs> for me, I think it's a, about the visual. You walk into an organisation and you can see it's mixed. It's got mixed genders, it's got mixed races, religions, everything else. And I think that to me means that you've embodied that when you first see it. If you don't, I think there's some work that you need to do. But I think for me, it definitely is that visual and being able to see that. And then just looking around and understanding. For me, it's about culture. It's about the culture of the organisation. Get that right and everything else will flow. And you can see that when you see people working together. There's a real commitment, accountability and a harmony with people. And I think that's, for me, that's really important. And you've done a lot of consultancy work in your time. I have. Going into organisations at the interview stage, is that something you consider, sort of the visual and how it looks and how you think from based on that, how they're going to take diversity inclusion seriously? I do, seriously? and interestingly, I was approached about a role uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the first thing I did is I looked at your boards. I looked at your board and I looked at your exec team, and if I didn't see myself on that team, I'm not interested. And I will tell that to any agency, that actually that organisation either needs help, and I can do that, but I can't work for you because I don't see your commitment through that. For me, it's very visual. And not everyone's like that, but I think for me, it's my first point of call. And that's really important. Is it the same for, for you guys as well? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I believe that the, you know, from the minute where you're looking to work for an organisation or you're looking at the attraction within an organisation, you need to be able to see yourself, envision yourself. And for me, it's about belonging. So... Part of the work we've done on our recent people strategy in the organisation I work for, we've got a pillar called creating a home for our colleagues to belong. So it's about creating a home where you're spending so much of your time. And actually, it's about feeling valued, but not valued to fit in, but valued to be unique and still have your say within that organisation as well. I love that. I think sort of from my point of view, kind of diversity is about perspective and actually having and being able to work with people that aren't like you and it's not just about you know those having different life experiences or coming from different backgrounds you know regardless of that everyone should feel valued um, within an organization they should feel that they can be listened to I think that's a, a, a huge thing. And I think unless an organisation has a shared vision and, and values, actually, yes, you can have a diverse workforce, that's great, but actually what are all these diverse people doing? They've not got a, a common goal, if you will. I think that's quite important to me. Yeah, and I know something internally at Oyster, we speak about quite a lot, our vision and our goal. And we've always said, you know, the culture here, we're all such different people. There is no way in the normal world anyone at Oyster <laughs> would cross paths because we are so different. But internally here, because we have that shared goal, it works. We all fit together well. We're a really weird mix of people sat in a room together. But that energy and that drive and that kind of shared goal means that what makes us different is kind of how we're moving forward. Yeah. I think you're right. I think um, diversity and inclusion work hand in hand because we're all a reflection in our workplace of the social constructs that we live in and we should expect to see the same in our working environments. And yet, time and time again, through the eight or nine 
transformational change programs since the 90s, I've seen that we concentrate on the things that we understand more or can see visually above the waterline, which is technology, systems, process, and we leave people to last, which is meaning that people aren't that straightforward, they're idiosyncratic, and that frightens a lot of board members. They don't quite know how to handle that, and so they duck and dive the issue, and I've seen it time and time again, but we are getting better. The world is changing, and I think some marvellous uh, steps towards diversity and inclusion is happening as we speak. Yeah, so I was going to say it's um, really interesting, I guess, to to hear that sort of view and the particularly for you guys looking at new places and having to look at the sort of diversity behind it all. So I'm you know, probably a fair bit of ignorance for myself. When I joined Oyster, I just just wasn't really something that crossed my mind. I just, you know, signed up to join a company and never even thought about looking into the diversity of something. Fortunately, I walked into it and it is incredibly diverse. And then, Gary, going off what you've just said, you mentioned that, you know, back in the 90s, there was a focus on maybe less people-focused areas. Do you feel like diversity and inclusion is being spoken about more now or is it kind of in the spotlight a bit more now? And, And if so, is that for a reason, do we think? Well, there is a positive and a negative to take away from this, I think. I've heard of a saying uh, which is, ready, aim, but never fire. And I think it's really applicable here. I love that. It fits so well, doesn't it? (laughs) It's almost like a procrastination in the business. And I think... It's a very kind of nebulous subject. We can take it in all sorts of different directions. And what I witnessed in the 90s was great strategies, maybe too long to actually draw out and, and, and articulate, because in itself it's quite difficult, the language, etc. But then it kind of fizzles out where the implementation, I think board members sign off on installation. They're, they're happy to go, we've done the job, we've worked it up, it's a proof of concept great we can go off and do our own things now but the implementation bit which is the hardest bit in my opinion is missing and I I see that time and time again when you talk about the business case and going up in transformation programs with a business case people want to see the quantifiable numbers how much is it going to cost where's the people performance you know, where's the outcome and benefits realised around people performance? And actually, are we really addressing that in terms of appreciating diversity and respecting it in order to get inclusion and participation and ownership within the line? And I think, like you said, people recognise why maybe it's important to have a policy or to have some sort of strategy, but the implementation of actually taking that from a bit of paper, that's what it is, into Mm. practice is very different. In your guys' opinion, what what benefits are there of having a diverse workforce? What does that bring to an organisation? I think it brings diversity of talent and skill, most definitely. I don't think it's necessarily about all of your protected characteristics. Actually, if you recognise that in every area of everybody else's life, they have a different skill set to bring, first and foremost, that should be your reasoning for. And everything follows through, but you need to get it right. Going back to Gary's point... I, was, I set up a consultancy back in the 90s and it was very much the, the thing of the time. Everyone's talking about diversity. You did them some really great policies and they thought, great. They parked them and carried on moving. 20 years later and I'm still doing the same thing. I'm like, but I was talking to you about this <laughs> yeah. years ago. What's happening? But it's education. So all 
somebody says that you need to have a diversity policy, so you write one, and then you write, okay, it's done, we'll put it in the drawer, it's fine, if anyone asks, we'll just wheel it out, exactly. (laughs) But they didn't do anything about it. But I think this time round, people understand, and people are a bit more woke, and they're getting to (laughs) recognise, but they are, they're getting to understand, Mm. however you term it, People are more understanding. And I think we've got a generation of people coming up now that really want to make a, a difference. And they, yeah. they recognise that. And so there's something around looking at everything within your organisation saying, actually, what's our overall aim? What's our target operating model? What's our culture of the organisation to look like? How do we negotiate our people to get to where they need to be? Now, if you look at that and everyone looks the same, they've all got the same skills, you've got a problem. What you're not doing is identifying what's going on around the organisation to bring out and draw out some of those real key skills. And it just isn't about what they do while they're sitting at a desk typing on the computer. It's the stuff they do at home that you don't know about. Mm. It's But you're not asking those questions. So it is about education, but being able to have those conversations with people to draw that out and recognise that it isn't just a policy. It's a lot more than that. Yeah. But you have to have those conversations. And that's an art form. It's not easy for everyone to do. I think people are quite f- afraid I was saying that people feel uncomfortable about having a conversation where they might say something wrong. So instead of yeah. risking that, they say nothing at all. And Absolutely. that's kind of the... We've even got a worse, policy, right? like you said. It's <laughs> even worse. It's in the drawer. If anyone asks if we've got one, we can email it over to them and that's fine. Yeah. And do you know what? I have a bit of a horror story, actually, from back when I was recruiting, where I was asked to recruit a white female housing officer... And I don't know if, if in the, at the time this particular manager thought they were doing something right because they were going, because that will make my team diverse. But I was absolutely mortified. I was like, I, I, I can't believe you're saying that to me and I don't really know where to go with it because it was a, oh, God, you're my client. Should I say no to you? And actually, I'm very fortunate that coming back to the guys here at Oyster, they were like, well, just don't, don't do it. Don't, don't work that role in that case. It's not a role you need to... You don't need to go out and represent yourself like that. But that's a really good example, I guess, of where a really bad way of implementing a diversity policy sort of went. And I I don't know if you guys have got any similar sort of experiences of where people have tried to do something in one way and it's definitely been sort of rolled out in a completely different way. Yeah, I think, Jazz, we were speaking before the podcast earlier and I said, you know, I have a friend that has gone and joined a business and they've even told her, you know, we need to be more diverse. And she comes from a very different background and it's just like, it's tokenism, isn't she? She hasn't been taken on on her merit, which she absolutely should have been. It's because she's a female of a certain background. And, you know, you look at the website and it's all, you know, very one dimensional let's say (laughs) and then she's on that and you know I find that I find that shocking that actually this person felt the need to tell her that but also take away from you know a very successful person in her own right I'd be mortified I think if I ever sat in front of someone and they went you've achieved all this and that's great but actually what we really like about you is that you're fit in a mold that we're now trying to fill yes but going back on kind of the other side of the argument how does an, an organisation that maybe isn't diverse become diverse without openly going, we are trying to become diverse? Do you know what I mean? Like how, in your guys' opinion, would would someone implement a policy without openly saying, that's what we're doing, so we're hiring people to, to make us to look a certain <clears throat> sort of way? For me, I think it's about encouraging the opportunity for applicants from all backgrounds or diversities to apply for the role and actually feeling that they could belong in that organisation 
whilst attracting and recruiting the absolute best talent for the organisation. Um, so I think I think you have to get that balance right. Um, everything from language that's used in advertising. I mean, I think the word strong, you know, often that's quite a, a male representative word in an advert. So it's just being really aware of the language that you're using. Um, but also breaking down those statistics, measuring the diversity of recruitment campaigns that you're running within an organisation and also Re uh, measuring the data of your current workforce to make sure that's representative potentially of uh, where your organization's based um, and being aware of being aware of that and I think also the work that you're doing in, with diversity having some clear measures so that you are measuring success what's your diversity policy there to achieve is it just there collecting dust or are you working towards something I think it needs to be underpinned by uh, a strategy or an action plan and actually, you need some expert knowledge in that field as well. It's it's not just necessarily for, uh, you know, a people professional to carry that work forward. It needs to be across the whole organisation. Mm. And is that something you guys have been involved in? So is that how it works? You would train other members of an organisation, be it hiring managers or just people within the organisation, to understand what that bit of paper means, that work you've done before? Or I think it's important too. I do think that there's a... There's a real need for it not to just be an HR-led um, activity because then it just becomes something that's been put upon mm -hmm. as opposed to something that's actually a fabric of the organisation. At um, TFL, we have a leadership charter, which is a commitment from all of the leaders across the organisation um, to diversity. So they have their diversity policy and everything else around it and their strategies and their action plans. And each and every leader in the organisation has signed the charter to say, actually, we commit to doing this. Next steps are for them to do it, but the first step is actually to get some buy-in from the top, and I think that's really important. If it's only ever seen among, you know, in the bottom ranks, it's never going to get any further than that. It has to be a real commitment from the, the top of the organisation, which predominantly where it's very one-dimensional. And actually, if you've got that first starting point and that level of education, that's when you start to see some real differences. That level of education is quite interesting though, isn't it? Because I think that being a senior leader in an organisation doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the skill or the appreciation or the understanding of what you might be able to almost interact with or mm. promote or mm. speak about. Mm. I think actually it's quite a vulnerable place to be in, to almost hold your hand up and say... I'm not sure, quite sure if this is something I can say or something that I can interact with on LinkedIn, for example. You know, I think there's a lot of fear around around that. We've, yeah. we've only got we've only got to look at Black Lives Matter last year and and actually organisations feeling that they need to respond, but potentially not knowing how to. So I think for me, it's having that brave approach. We need to be brave yeah. with this dialogue with diversity and belonging and. I think that's where some organisations potentially are falling behind. Yeah. It's that level of uncomfortability Absolutely. that people <laughs> have. And it's hard to break that down when... So I think people feel that they need to respond to black mm. matters or whatever mm. it might be. But actually, and they really don't know how to, but they've signed the charter and they've, signed, they've got the policy and they're like, OK, well, we did it. And I know all about George Floyd and it's very, very terrible and stuff, but actually it only goes there. And so the education comes from people like ourselves, consultants, people in HR at the very start, just giving that level of education and getting those champions across the organisation to really get some buy-in 
to deliver yeah. that message. How, how do you identify people for your consultancy? Do people approach you or do you approach them? It's a two-way thing. It's more of an executive mm-hmm. search. So I'll go out and seek people. I'm a member of a number of networks. I've got a huge network on LinkedIn. So I know people and I'll know if you've given me a job or I know that you need help in an area, there's always someone in the back of my mind that I know will be able to to kind of do that for you or I know how to help but it isn't necessary for me about just getting you the right person in the right job and doing that that's a part of the service but for me it's about working with that client to understand what you're missing why you're missing it what those pain points are and how do we fix those before we start saying right I'm going to put an advert out and I need 15 black people please because uh, that's just (laughs) what we do because uh, black lives matter and you're like but that's fine and that's great but that's tokenism and it isn't about Mm. that you have to feel it from your heart and not everyone's going to do it it's not a natural thing as people it's not a natural thing but there's something about looking at your organization and looking what you've got and just doing that basic assessment to say where are our pain points what is the problem how do we work that into what we need and one of my other services is leadership development. Actually, you've got a load of people at grade, let's say, three in your organisation that really want to get to a four or five. They've got really great skills. Let's build a programme to build mm. them up into the organisation. You've got your resources right there. Often, those misrepresented areas of people are at the lower grades. But So why don't we just start thinking about what you've got and how do we work that up into something really meaningful? There is a number of, a number of ways to tackle it. And so when I say education, it isn't just about put an advert out and let's get loads of people through the door. We'll take one Muslim, one black, three guys for HR because there's no guys in HR. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, but you know, so it's all Gary. of those... Like, Gary, you're today. You really are. <laughs> but it isn't, it's not that positive action exercise. That's great and it will solve a temporary problem. Problem, but it's not solving the solution from all the people that have given you that dedication for years with, and years. With that, and obviously, like the tokenism and, and filling a quota is obviously not the right way to go about it. But does it, to a certain extent, open the door to begin with to get people in who can then work their way up? Absolutely. In, in that and then start making the changes? Absolutely. I don't, when I say tokenism, I mean you, you're physically going out to get a person mm. for a specific reason just because you need to tick a... And so it's it's not necessarily about that. Actually, yes, you might need more representation on your executive board, so be really consistent with your recruitment process and there are ways to do it so that you don't discriminate. And yes, recruit the right people, more women onto your board, more women into the executive leadership team, more people of colour, more people of different religions. That's great and really representative. The people at levels three and below, whatever the level might mm. be, will see that and they'll be really infused by that and it will give them hope. There's definitely some positives about positive action. But at the same time, it isn't just about doing it for tokenism yeah. and picking mm. people for the sake of it. It's been really legitimate about your recruitment processes. But yeah. that's where a consultant will come in and say, right, let me be part of your recruitment process. Let me tell you what the do's and don'ts are. I want you to recruit with some level of unconscious bias. And that's really hard for everybody to do people recruit in their own image because they like the person they can Mm -hmm. relate to them it's not it it almost isn't a bad thing and I've got mixed feelings about unconscious bias but at the same time if you all look the same speak the same talk the same and drink at the same bars you're going to recruit my girl down the road who really does the same thing (laughs) Mm. so it's about just being a little bit more relaxed and open with your thought processes opening up your recruitment processes and being really transparent 
you know what? One of our, um, not one of our, RMD went to a, an event recently, which was attended by lots of recruitment owners. Mm. Um, and one thing they all said they struggled with was hiring a diverse workforce. Now, for me, that's baffling anyway. If you're based in London, how can you struggle to hire mm. a diverse workforce? Because one of the great things about London is how diverse it is, right? We're, we're in the centre of London. People can travel in from all parts of it, just out on the outskirts. Mm. Um, but they were really struggling. And so one of the answers someone said he had was to hire lots of black and Asian managers in the hope they would, in turn, hire lots of black and Asian staff. So our MD sort of just went why don't you just do it? Like, why is that not something that your managers are currently aware of? And, you know, they sort of came back and went, well, how have you done it? And weirdly, we've almost been opposite to most companies yeah. that we never really had a, a, an equality policy. That was just something we always were. You know, back in the day, we, we were asked to provide um, like management information to lots of companies we were applying to be on their PSL. And they wanted to know how we were diverse. And we, our answer was always like, well, we just are. <laughs> That's just kind of how, we, how we've always been brought up, um, how we've thought about things. So it's interesting that, you know, people are almost doing it the other way to us, where people haven't been diverse and all of a sudden they've got a policy and then done it. We got a policy because we needed one as opposed to needed to be diverse. Mm. Um, which again, like I said, is strange for me, but even stranger that people struggle in today's day and age in a city like London to sort of be that type of organisation. Mm. So you see it on the, Hannah, you see it on the, um, on our side of it. Absolutely. And I think, as you said, we, we are based in central London. So if you were to walk into the business and we were all middle class, you know, white males, it, it it's just not reflective of working in central London, is it? And, you know, I've certainly, in the hiring round that we've just done, a girl came in and interviewed with us and, you know, I spoke to her the day after and said, how did you find it? And she said, I went home and cried because it was the first recruitment agency that had gone in and there were women in senior positions. And, you know, this this girl had gone and interviewed at four or five different competitors and yet it was us that she was like, actually, I felt like as soon as I walked in... I was going to be a part of this team. And again, it's just, it's mind-boggling that even that is still a thing today. It's shocking. Pauline will hate me for saying this, but Kieran, you know Pauline with your love of Leicester that you guys (laughs) bond over. Um, She said to me not that long ago, she was like, Jazz, the reason I chose Oyster is because I saw myself in you. And that for me was really bizarre because I've never looked at myself as someone who's trying to break stereotype or someone who's trying to, you know, fly the flag for women I've just, I've just tried to do a good job and naturally that sort of led to me climbing the ranks but to hear someone say well you're the reason that I've I chose to come here to, as opposed to other agencies was a little bit saddening that that's that's so different to what other agencies right. are like but also like well we are doing a good job because that is being noticed mm. um and, you know you guys mentioned that sometimes people do things the wrong way by bringing tokens and whatever else have you got examples of where people have done a really good job and actually you've gone to know that's the way to to really make a difference Well, I think there's some interesting points that have been raised over the last five minutes. You know, are we talking about positive discrimination? Are we talking about, you know, uh, ring-fencing a certain minority group, an underrepresented part of our workforce, a potential workforce, and bringing them in? But then when you have done so, what do you do with them to bring them up to speed, get them hit the ground running? Mm. You know, is it just dump them in the deep end and see if they sink or swim? Mm. Or is it actually mentorship and coaching with the uh, point that Jazz made, you know, seeing herself in, in the eyes of others? So I think it's it's fraught with danger. Well, there's, a, there's a saying, isn't there, that keeps on being repeated, that all change programmes, whether projects or programmes, tend to be a failure rate of 70%, which means that only 30% work. 
and it's worse for process. So if you're looking at how, with a, with a kind of DNI eye, uh, whether your processes are fit for purpose in terms of like, diversity, it means that you've got to go through your entry into an organisation through all the various routes, whether it be email, whether it be websites, above the line, below the line, and actually analyse whether they're fit for purpose in terms of, yeah, they, they meet the diversity criteria. You know, we're open, we're challenging, and we've got feedback loops and people are giving us feedback in real time about whether it's meeting the agenda. And you have to do that with all the processes, not because it's a cashable benefit, but actually you know, there is. But how do you get that message up on the leadership board to say that diversity and equality and doing it right means that there is a cashable benefit and a non-cashable benefit, which not a lot of execs talk about, which is actually our workforce is happier. It's, it's meaningful. It has purpose. Mm. It's driven. And I think that's one, it trusts the organisation and it feels like it's a safe place to work. And that word safe, I've met time and time again where I've tried to have the organisation commit to a voice, you know, and be heard. And this mm. is wrong, that needs to change, that's right, this is burdensome. And it takes a long time for people to get that confidence to feel that it's okay. And... You know, it starts from the anonymization. you know, a, a kind of suggestion box at the end of your filing cabinet <laughs> with no names and bits of paper go into it from, actually, we are running our communities of practice, which I did with the post office. And this is what we're going to do about restructure. And that's a very emotive subject. Mm. People mm. are looking at changing their roles and their jobs and even being ex exited from the organisation. So how do you motivate people to feel that they are safe, to have a voice, to be concerned about the future and move on? And it's, it's a challenge. But if you don't start from the grassroots and in the places where it's narrower, low paid, zero hours, temporary contracts and places where it burns fastest, then actually you have no real hope of challenging the websites that say you are diverse and this is how we care about people mm. and this is what we want to feel like in the organization uh, you need to really look at the processes and challenge them for dni mm, you know what? i don't know if you guys are the same but i for me all it's normally recruitment agencies that i look at that that talk about how diverse they are on their website and i know and i know they're not because i know people that work there and i know it's just an outward thing and i know they're just doing it so they can you know a, appeal to people that maybe want to apply there but God, it frustrates me. Like because that's it's not enough, is it? It's not enough to put on a website that you are you're ticking all these boxes. Because actually, all that will happen is that when you do get people that mm. are bought into that, that then turn up to work for you and then go, hang on a minute, <laughs> this yeah. is this is not what I was um, yeah. what name I was expecting. I'm absolutely not going <laughs> to name and shame. I'm sure you know exactly who I'm talking about, Will. But. For I all our sakes, I'm not going to mention there. that. <laughs> um, a, a question I had for for all of you around. Um, well, I think that's something that you, you guys have all sort of mentioned at various different points is the education behind it. Do you think there should be a far more active effort, I think, you know, at schools, universities, the rest of it, to start talking about it far more then? Because it, it wasn't really discussed of, from what I can remember being at school. Is it something that you think there should be, like, whether it's a class, whether it's a module, something that should be discussed more regularly, more freely? Yeah. I think so. I agree. I think it's... It doesn't almost start at home, but it starts before the workplace, definitely. Mm. I used to work for Brunel University, 
And it was amazing how these kids who were just coming out of uni had no clue. They had no clue about the working world. They had no clue about even doing a CV. But they just weren't ready. They stayed with their own bubbles. You saw them on campus. Everyone was in their own groups. Mm -hmm. It all looked very same, the same because they were comfortable with that. And there's something about breaking down that comfortability to say, actually, it's okay to mix, and but this is what's going to happen when you get into the workplace. And you're gonna, it's not going to be like this. It's not going to have singular groups. And actually, you need to start focusing a bit more on what's going on outside. From the education part, a lot of people don't know the history of anything. I've been watching a couple of programmes on yesterday or BBC4 recently about black history and about the amount of black, Asian, Chinese, Japanese people that fought in the First and Second World Wars. I didn't yeah. even know. 9th of November comes and goes for me. A poppy is fine. It looks quite nice on a black coat. That's as far as it goes. <laughs> but actually, that education for me has changed to, overnight. Huge just changed my it? thoughts yeah, yeah. about the 9th of November and how... Mm. I will celebrate that because I know, because I saw something in me on the battlefields and I didn't see that before. But that simple bit of education changed my thought process slightly. And if that can change just me in one program, think what it could do to a younger mind that's just out there and, and ready to go. So there's something to be said about something, anything out, out in the field. It has to happen. It has to happen early, I think. I yeah, I agree completely. I completely agree with that. And I think that parents have a responsibility with children from a very young age, talking sort of from the age of two, three, as soon as they can start speaking and recognising other people. And I think leaders have a responsibility within an organisation. True story. Um, last night, I was called into Maya's room and she's only 11 and she had a folded piece of paper, which I was always pulling out of her jacket and teasing her. And when she opened it up and showed me what was on it, there was all her beautiful drawings of people with colour and history attached. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is quite a revelation to me because I never had this at school. And there was these kind of pen pictures and storylines and narrative around people with baskets, people with you know, indigenous surroundings. And I just thought, they're going through it at school. And that's fabulous. And I think it's a shame that we... I didn't see that in mine. No, I didn't either. And I guess that's maybe where some of the problems are in the workplace, that the people who are on these boards, that are on these sort of senior teams... They didn't, I, mean, I didn't get it in my it, sort of my school level, yeah. but hopefully when you know your daughter, when kind of kids today are in the positions that we're all in, they will make a positive change. But I guess the challenge at the moment then is how do you educate someone that's never been educated in this way and kind of get them to make a difference, but in a positive way rather than a, a bit of a knee jerk. Well, we'll do this because I'm being told I've got to do this. Like where where do you start educating someone that's been in the workforce for twenty plus years and get them to change their mindset? I think, I think naturally the next generation that are coming through, and mm. I, I like to think I still somewhat fit into this generation, but I, think <laughs> we, I certainly think that we are feeling more empowered to challenge that. So mm. I can give you a really personal example. Um, all my life from, from a young age since being at school, I've always been called Kieran. And it's only recently that I've, I've started correcting people and saying, actually, my name's pronounced Kieran. Um, and they're, they're two completely different names, completely different meanings. And for me to feel that empowerment at the age of 28, it's taken a while, but I'm really glad that I found that voice in me. And kind of a more humorous example, a couple of years ago with my, with my work team, uh, we were going out on kind of a, a work social night out and there's lots of 
what I'd call white music from the 80s, which I just don't know. Like, I've not, <laughs> I've not been brought up listening to it. So when I'm standing there kind of really a bit mortified that I don't know this music, actually now I feel quite empowered to just say, look, I listened to Bollywood when I grew up. I didn't listen to this Were you stuff. like me having Sunrise Radio <laughs> yeah, playing in absolutely. the background? absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think... A part of me probably a few years ago felt quite isolated by that and a bit like, oh, I don't I don't quite fit in. But now I'm just like, no, nah, actually, I quite enjoyed listening to the music that I grew up with. Um, and then it's fine that I don't know it. So I think really having that voice and feeling empowered to, to say that. But I think part of the difference between inclusion and belonging is with inclusion, you, you have the right to have a voice but with belonging it's about your voice being heard and that's where there's a there's a fine line especially within organizations if you're committing to your colleagues belonging there you need to hear them through and and take on board kind of what they're saying and to make that positive change I think that takes facilitation. There's a company I'm working with at the moment, um, We Protect, and they have a very good cause and a great mission for protecting children online. And because they're a startup and they're ex-home office officials, it's been a real challenge for them for the first year to get it up and running and get stakeholders on board to, do, you know, to feel like they're part of the purpose. But as a team, I'm amazed at how much appreciation around teamwork there is. And that takes facilitation. So currently there's one facilitation going on, which is, boss, your team think that pay and rewards is something to be talked about. And there's some reticence and some resistance to that. And he knows he's got to open up. He knows he's got to engage. But it's difficult. And so the facilitator's saying, you've, you've ducked the question, you need to be asked again, what are you going to say to your employees in real time about how you're going to address this problem? And that is really challenging for seniority. And There's I think, a coaching element there, though, yeah. isn't there? There's something about that consultant working one-on-one with that person, for them to feel completely vulnerable and open with you, to say, actually, I'm not comfortable with this, or I don't really know what to do. But when they can approach that that way, mm-hmm. then they can open up and, and work on him. But it takes a lot for you to be able to... It takes a special person to be able to get that out of somebody at that level, for them to be that vulnerable, to say, look, I don't know or I don't really want to, or actually no, but at least having that vulnerability and then building up from there. It's going back to that safe place again, isn't it? Yeah. Word safe and them feeling safe to, yeah, to feel vulnerable. And yeah, and putting their hands up and just saying, look, I haven't got a clue. Or actually, it doesn't mean anything to me. Diversity and inclusion isn't my, on my agenda. When you look at the ranks at the top of an organisation, they are very typical, and that's because they've come up through the ranks. Transport for London is the worst for it because they've grown up, as they say, man and boy, which I think is a, a very strange saying, but they've started from when they were very young and they're now at the top. They're not going anywhere. There are people, and it's at that layer all across the organisation and you'll find it a lot in local authority because that's just how it is. We have to accept that. They might not be able to bend, but that layer underneath, which is the next generation that's coming up, have a very different mindset. Sometimes we just have to wait for that churn to just be over and done with but the education sits just underneath that there's a commitment at the top because people have to do it as leaders but there's a real group of people under there the heads of and those downwards that have really got a chance to grasp it and I think that's where that some of those comfortable and uncomfortable conversations happen that's exciting as well right that actually there could be this whole generation of people coming through that and I think it's the right time and when we talk about it you know the 90s and and diversity and you know nothing's happened they weren't ready for it 
Mm. They're ready for it now because that layer is now at the end of their career and the next gen generation's coming up. So it's going to take time. I don't think we realised it at the beginning, but now it's happening. I think this time round we'll be able to make a real difference because you have a, a better opportunity to change your mindset. We've come a long way. We didn't have social media in those times. Everyone has a voice now, an opinion, and has their opportunity to say so. And there are networks building and people are getting a bit more understanding, openness and awareness of different cultures, of different people, of different religions. Everything that happens under your protected characteristics line, it's all there and open for you to see. So people are more open to it. Back in the 90s, I don't think people had that opportunity. So they were still, they were still very closed. So I think we're seeing a, a massive shift, a huge shift. And um, do you think there's things that, you know, we can be done in the meantime while that's happening to make sure that the lower levels, the usual word, feel safe at the moment, to feel like they do have a voice, to feel like they are being included but also being listened to. Is there something that we could do in the meantime to kind of bridge that gap before the change happens, I think. I, I, I think the, the, the change is constant and that's the thing to, to realise. I think now we've got to make sure that we keep the momentum going and that's about having those conversations and doing that coaching work and working with the, the haves and the have-nots, the individuals that are really open to making a change and those that are a bit reticent. But actually, how do we bridge that gap for when those people at the top leave to what are we preparing for the future? So how are we preparing that next level of that next generation of people to move up into those leadership roles and it's about having those conversations and it's about business etiquette and it's all of the things that have got those people at the top to where they are that actually everyone else isn't necessarily privy to so why not let's start making a common leadership understanding at the heads up and down level. I just wanted to add to that that I think emotional intelligence has a big part to play and being compassionate and having respect because as much as it's so powerful that we're mm. using social media to talk about it, to have a voice, it can be quite exhausting as well. You know, personally for me, being British Indian of a Sikh religion, you know, I know f for me there's a lot of history there that's been coming up through social media, a lot of what's going on in, in India currently. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's so much and it's it can be quite a lonely place to be when you're reading that and you feel quite helpless. So you're learning about your own history, but it's, it's difficult to explain. You know, you, you identify with that, but there's not a lot you can do and you can feel like other people don't necessarily understand you as well. Mm, mm. And you've only got to look at, for example, what's going on in Afghanistan and people from an Afghani heritage, how they must be feeling right now. But actually, do people in the workplace really understand that? So for me, it's about compassion, emotional intelligence, and just having that respect to to hear others and to listen to others and how they might be feeling. Mm. I think if organisations want to make a difference and appreciate the rich the richness of diversity and want to take positive action in terms of inclusion and participation, I think it starts. It's almost like an orchestra, isn't it? Everyone in time and in sync. So there's a, that needs kind of bottoming out. But then you need that person with a baton, you know, that person at the top, the champion, who's going to say, this is going to be a safe place because it's me that's going to make sure this actually works. And then suddenly that, that voice and that passion and that reasoning, maybe that vision and mission is out there and people have already got their foot in the door. So I think building up the awareness about the need for, for that change is really important. 
and then talk about the benefits because that's the way that people's language works. You know, what's in it for me? How am I going to make a difference? What's the outcome? What's the benefits? So talk about the benefits that, and bring in the personal circumstances uh, so that it creates momentum amongst the employees and introduce early adopters and pilots because actually you need the proof of concept, you need it to work. Mm. You need to show and demonstrate in HR speak that there is competence in what you're doing and there's passion and people out there on the comms and engagement side of things talking about their personal experiences because <laughs> in the world of people, there's those who adopt early, those who sit on the fence, and those who need to be dragged kicking and screaming to, to the new world. And then show the results early. You know, don't just plan and plan the waterfall, if you like. Be agile. Show the results early. That's some of those quick wins, isn't it, actually? Yeah. And some of those things that you can get right early, like you say, early, to deliver those results to, for people to see that it actually does work. It's really important. Really important. Yeah. And then loop it round again, you know, because the problem with change programs is that we create or I create programs and projects that are temporary. They go to the board for investment approval. They pull down money or draw down money that they otherwise, the cost benefit analysis of going to this program rather than another. And so the conversations at board level and especially at champion level is, well, what's, what's the return on investment? So... Over the years, I have seen so many times that we marginalise and, and make insignificant the world around diversity and appreciation of that. And we talk about useful things like employees engaged in performance will drive the business success and therefore the cashable benefits are that. So there's a skill. But are you just diluting it? and diverting funds to other streams of work. And as soon as you start addressing the, well, you know change programmes are temporary, actually diversity and inclusion is a more continuous, adaptive process that is sustaining. And there's a sense of constant realisation and adjustment at the end, which doesn't fit into a project. Mm. You know, it's a constant business-as-usual activity, and that is hard to measure. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy that. It is. It's business as usual. It's, it's not just a policy. Like it's th- this has got to become the norm. Mm. I enjoyed that. A question that I had for you all then. So you all mentioned that diversity falls under HR in many um, instances. When you all got into HR, was that something you were aware of? Was that something that that you thought you'd be dealing with, or was it kind of just a as time went on? Kieran's shaking her head already. So I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm guessing that's a no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I think about my career in HR, I did as I was saying to you earlier, Jazz, I've got a degree in uh, a master's in HR, but that certainly doesn't equip you on how to produce a policy or a a strategy on diversity and inclusion in a workplace. I think HR is so broad, um, especially if you come through as a generalist. And um, I was just sort of chatting to Gary earlier and saying that we really need to invest in in that specialist talent in that space, especially if you're starting from kind of a blank canvas or you need to introduce a policy or strategy. Whilst I think that HR professionals or people professionals can plug that gap often they work in a hybrid role like myself I manage a a people team so for me to completely wave that flag and and lead the way um, is is quite tough you know I think you can do a lot to champion diversity but to actually take all the actions that underpin that is is quite tough in terms of resource 
Mm. Was that the same for you guys, kind of coming through the ranks? Was it? Mine was very different. So I set up this consultancy, a diversity consultancy, then got a call from an organisation to to work in their organisation. So it kind of just flowed from there. So I was an HR business partner for diversity and equality. So it's always been, for me, an HR thing. Over the years, I've come to realise that actually... So it's great to stay in the people space because I think it's really important that it's part of your people strategy. Um, inclusivity is all important. But it comes back to garnering that engagement from around the business, from the champions that work in finance, in housing, whatever it might be, but actually getting some interest that's in the ground situated right in your team to be able to help you deliver and spread the message. And that's how you deliver your actions. There's only ever one person in diversity in HR. It's never a team of people. It's just, it never works. You've always got a group of people outside of that. And that's the way you deliver your actions. It's going to be the only way, but it makes sure that it is part of a fabric of an organisation and doesn't just sit in HR as yet another thing to tick off my performance for the year. Yeah. Gary, same for you? I think um, over the years I've watched myself kind of vote, if you like, for I'm not a policy, I'm a delivery person. And I've watched that, those two circles merge together. And so now I'm still involved in the what, where, why, how and when and making it very, and orchestrating that deliverable and that outcome and benefit and investment and return on it with a passion for HR. So I actually read books, sad, um, that (laughs) are all about HR processes or all about HR technology. And I work a lot with restructure. So I study people like McKinsey's and I was trained by McKinsey's people in, in post office to do something called spans and layers, which is a whole retake on how you do Hayes. Um, job evaluation Mm. and looking at how to make leaner, more agile organisational structures means that you have to have an ear out for the people aspects of change and Mm. that means understanding the diversities of organisations, groups and teams and even individuals as a group, a cohesive togetherness in order to make change stick. And I think that's the real challenge for any change agent, which used to be an HR person, but they, including IT, have said, actually, that's a specialist role. So I totally agree with the comments uh, uh, that you need somebody, a specialist, to be brought in to aid HR services. you do. HR are equipped for it. There's There's no part of the CIPD that tells you this. There just isn't. There's, you know, it comes from... I think it comes from within. Yeah. And it's a, it is a real passion and it's a dedication because it's not easy and it's long-lasting. Yeah. Um, and where you guys have had to have it as part of your own in the past and sort of champion it and make sort of connections with, like you said, people in finance or housing. Yeah. Have you ever had someone say something to you where you're like, I can't believe you just said that? Like, head-in-hand moment, what? <laughs> have you ever sort of been shocked by what's been said to you or...? Gary's nodding his head, so <laughs> there's Gary's got to be some story juicy there. stories here. <laughs> think, That's all I we're think after. We probably all had a what the actual moment <laughs> in the grand Do scheme share. of things. Oh, I, I, you know, we've got to name any names. Well, but... I'm not naming any names. I've been around for a while, and I've heard. <laughs> I started out my career in recruitment, and you know, recruit me in English rows and all of that. You know, real basic stuff was 
what I started out with. What did you recruit for? It was a, just a general commercial <laughs> agency, but without saying the name, it would just oh, give okay, it away fine. kind of thing. But, you know, it was it was temporary stuff. Somebody asked for an English rose and you're just kind of like, and I was really young at the time. I was like, come on now, you know, it's just, just a little bit antiquated. But over the years, I think people are becoming more aware. But I think that the... And we have to remember that we're not without fault. Yeah. People will say things that perhaps you, I might find inappropriate, but you think that there's nothing to it. And there's something about challenging that. But also people are going to say things and they're going to say things that are a little bit out of turn or think that they're actually okay to do. So there's something about that, again, coming back to education and just calling people out. You talk about the spans. We At Genesis, we did a whole... Um, it wasn't under McKinsey's, but it probably was under the same framework as span of control. And that span of control included a number of things. But one of those things was you should be able to challenge. If you're at level five and you see somebody at level one making a mistake, challenge appropriately, but don't be afraid to do so. But then that ties in with your values and your values are around being courageous and having the platform to be able to say, actually, I think that was wrong without fear of losing your job, being ostracised, etc. But coming back to that, it's, there's a whole thing. It starts with the values. It starts with the culture. It starts with setting the tone and being able to say, actually, I don't think that's right. Yeah. There's something about fragility in the workplace and people are taking account for that and recognising that it's not okay to run your hands through my hair and tell me that, you know, it feels so nice and texturised or whatever it might be. And if I challenge you not to go into the corner and start crying and accept that actually I didn't like what you did and take account and responsibility for that. So there's a whole, again, education, I don't maybe it's the wrong word, but there's something about people just recognising, but also recognising that we're not all the same. We're not all going to think the same, do the same things. But it's about diversity of thought. Ultimately, your goal as an organisation is to come together. That's your primary goal. You need the right people in the right place to be able to get there. Diversity of thought is made up of everybody. And I think once you get that into your head, you'll get the right people in the right place to deliver that. And they will look different. And everyone come from different backgrounds because you've challenged the norm, taking it back to the very beginning and just said, actually, this is my long-term goal. This is my outcome. This is how I need to get there. If I'm thinking diversely in my head, and you've done it explicitly with Oyster, you think more broadly, therefore you recruit more broadly, therefore you get the group of people together that have got the diversity of thought to deliver what you need to do. It's such, in grand scheme of things, it's a simple concept, but people don't realise it because what (laughs) they think is if I... If we all look the same, at the same, do the same, go to the same bars, as I said before, we'll all get together, we'll all do the right thing. But ultimately, there's no diversity of thought. So you're all still thinking the same, so nothing ever changes. Well, it isn't, because it is, in theory, a real common sense kind of thing. Well, of course you need different people, because then you'd have people thinking a different way, but the translation of that into kind of the real world is where it gets complicated, because people don't all think the same way 
and even think getting people to think that they need to have different people thinking different ways is a whole challenge in itself. But it's so it's a business concept though, isn't it? And it's a yeah. change and transformation exercise. And it is around okay, our target operating model is X. We need to get here. This is our organisation's goals for the year, our corporate plan or strategy. How do we get there? We need these people in this place to be able to deliver X, Y, and Z. If we all thought the same way, we would never deliver a great housing strategy because there's only one train of thought. You have to have diversity of thought as an organisation to be able to deliver that. And then that will be representative in how you recruit and the people that's, that deliver your yeah. service. That is really simple. But it's a very hard concept to grab. I can imagine. I want to, I want to go back to Gary because he was yeah, nodding yeah. along when he said, when I was like, have you had any sort of bad experiences? or ha- I feel like you had a story to tell there. <laughs> Some of the bad stories just keep on repeating. So um, I've had wash-up notes kind of depicting what was said and you can actually see through the lens of bias and prejudice of that person taking notes of that seminar or that workshop and saying, yes, there is a business case for doing diversity, but we've got to be warned or we've got to show that warning that people might take the mickey and use it to create complaints and make noise in the HR reprisal area because they are after me in terms of workforce and appraisals and so on and therefore I can say I'm being discriminated at. So there was a clear piece of conjecture there interpreted by somebody who attended that workshop and then there was another saying this is something that isn't a priority for us and I'm talking about 2003 You know, this is something that we held workshops and try to broaden the horizons in people's minds. But it's shifting those blockers and the way in which people just can't see the woods for the trees. And that that is quite a difficult thing to do, which is to change people's... Because the way that behaviour works is driving it is attitude that drives behaviour. And behind that is perception... So you've got to almost get to the perception part in order to then change attitudes that then exudes different behaviours, the ones that you want. Yeah. And that is the kind of formula that I always imagine. What, what advice would you all give to those organisations at the moment that perhaps aren't particularly diverse and don't really know what to do as their first steps? Because there's been so many people who have opened new businesses and the rest during COVID and you know, from the fallout of that and then everything's sort of building back up now and so many people, I think, are trying to take a few steps towards this, but what advice would you give to those new businesses in their first steps? My first point of advice would just be to have a starting point, which sounds really simple, but I think we can often be, we can often strive for perfection, but actually just having a a starting point is the biggest step you can take and there's so many organisations out there now that share resources and actually want to support other organisations. So, also as somebody who you know if you've got skills in that space or um resources that you can share be willing to do that and help others because actually it's it's one end goal isn't it yeah pearls of wisdom nastily from you <laughs> i think the question that always is and it makes it makes me laugh it's very interesting oh we want to be more diverse what does that mean to you well you know we want more representation and you kind of know where they're going but actually is that what you need 
And so it's just kind of teasing out some of those, the reasons why, or the so what method. So you've got, I don't know, representation, so what? What does that do for you? How are you actually getting to your end goal? What is your end goal? And how are you going to get there? And it's almost working backwards. What do you want to achieve? And then how are we going to get there? What does diversity mean to you? You want a diverse organisation? I know what you're saying, and you know what you're saying, but is that what you need? And just thinking, just taking that, my, my advice would be just take time and think about what it is you need, and then let's work to getting where you need to be. Let's find a path, because the path isn't put an advert out, get the right people through the door, and our job's done. And we put that with the diversity policy. We've also put our recruitment policy in there as well. So we've done a bit of work. So there's something about having a little bit more thinking recognising that there is bias, bias exists. It might be unconscious, it might be there, but it is there. And accept that, Have be quite open and transparent and have ownership of your stuff and then work forwards. But it's about, sometimes it's about just stripping people bare a little bit and just saying, yeah. what is this really about? Yeah. I thought you might have said, use your consultancy. <laughs> you can also use pl- the consultancy at <laughs> 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 We'll put Natalie's details out there as well. <laughs> um, Gary, yourself? Ooh, so with all the kind of knockbacks and bricks that I've had at boards and middle management and even the, 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 the people at the coalface, I think there's a, there needs to be a new tact here. So one of the things that I've been working on is a paper to release um, shortly, academic paper, which is how to do a culture audit. Because, you know, leadership development, talent management, flexible resourcing, they all fall under the banner of culture. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to change the culture, one of the things that the National Audit Office and I agreed on, which change programmes are usually three years, have a finite time, whatever, money... Culture change takes roughly seven years to nine. It reinvents itself constantly by maybe three times is my experience. And it has to do so in order to stay flexible and realistic and uh, proportionate in what, where it is right now. So COVID has just changed everything. Culture auditing also respects the way that we work globally and locally. So, yes, it's great down from the top to talk about diversity and culture and what we want to be in future. But at the local level, we have heard descriptions like tribes and tribal and recognising how organisations, especially in the legal companies that I'm, I'm working with now, how important it is to respect the global community and how things are done in different countries and not take that away with a, with a kind of whitewash, carte blanche approach to diversity, you've got to map. So culture audits help you do globally, locally, within teams and groups of individuals in different parts of the world in order to then map your current state and then when you question them through Mori polls and questionnaires, where do they base themselves in future? You can start to map on a quadrant that I've got where they are now, where they are in the future, and the gaps you're trying to explore, and why in market rationale that's important to maintain. Culture in itself is an interesting kind of space at the moment, and it's certainly coming through more and more. With the work in relation to culture, do you think that we face that same issue of it sitting in the people space so we can go and have a culture audit in an organization to see where the culture is and where they strive to be in x amount of months time or years time 
who's leading that work or who should be leading that work? I definitely think that as a function, HR needs to be audited because they are they need to show the organisation, like marketing, like finance, that they are worth maintaining and keeping within the organisation because a lot of companies tend to look at the costs of organisations like that and farm them out or use technology to do the process automation. And I think the rationale for having HR and all the other functions mapped is to compare and contrast differences so that when you do aim, you're not ready aim but never fire because actually it's so diverse, you don't know where to start. You actually can start to elicit conversations in the business, get them on side, get them in the awareness space and the desire to participate, and I'm quoting Adkar here, and get them to own the knowledge, develop the, the case and the change plan and the case for change and then do the actions you'll get much more bite and traction for change if you do the kind of everyone has to do it but we appreciate the diversity in its result very interesting answers guys um do you find it so interesting to listen to like you guys are professionals and what you do um, and where we've always had a way of doing things internally it's great Mm. to hear kind of how everyone else does it but also you've all spoken about similar things in a different way so there's no one rule fits all absolutely um, you know there's people can be quite creative in how they approach this but still end up with the same end goal mm. of having a diverse workforce mm, absolutely and the name of the podcast is obviously rule number one and we have that for a reason as we love to ask every guest what their rule number one is so we, we tend to say to people personal professional whatever you'd prefer or both if you've got one for either side but it's that time. Let's ask you guys, what's your rule number one? I think my, my I don't know if it's a rule, it's just a, a philosophy that I believe in. That everyone has a story. And it's just, you don't, all that glitters isn't gold. You don't look at, don't tarnish everything, everyone with the same brush. Just have a conversation. There's more to it than meets the eye. And sometimes the reason why a person thinks the way they think is because they have a story to tell. And I think sometimes you just have to dig a little bit deeper. I've never heard anyone say all that glitters isn't gold, but I enjoy that. All that glitters isn't gold. Yeah. What about that song? What's up? What's the? Oh, there's a song that has it in. I but feel like it's in Shrek. You now sing said song. No, I can't remember what it is. I cannot sing. <laughs> all that you see isn't gold in Shrek. It's a bit. I, I've always. I don't know. I suppose it's just an English thing. And yeah. I don't know. I've just learned it through the from my grand and my. My yeah, mum, yeah. but yeah, all that glitters isn't gold, you know. It can be all nice and shiny and brand new, but underneath there's a lot of work to be Story, done. So, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of other analogies which I won't <laughs> go into, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm getting the picture. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, I love that. What about yeah. you guys? <laughs> well, I'm not sure I can follow Natalie's rule actually. That was, that was really nice to hear. Um, so, my number one rule, uh, kind of in the workplace, is to challenge the status quo. It's something that I think I've done from probably early in my career, and something I'd like to continue doing mm. to ask those questions that might make others feel a little bit uncomfortable, but hopefully to drive the right outcomes, um, kind of as the end goal. Um, I do have a personal rule as well, which is always to remain humble. I think that's really important to me. Um, to stay grounded and certainly my for my values to align with other people who are also humble and grounded mm. love that great answer last but not least gary mine's a little bit jaded um if all else fails your last chance saloon is jack up the engagement and communications budget 
<laughs> what a way to end. Yeah, fair play. Do we uh, do we get our guest host to jump oh, in with God, her number one as well? I was thinking about this. Um, do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna credit Hannah with this one. So years and years ago, I had a really bad day at work. You know, candidates didn't turn up to interviews. Didn't didn't get the job or whatever else and she said looked at me really seriously and said you know what jazz sometimes you're the statue and sometimes you're the pigeon <laughs> and that is my rule number one in life do you know what you're having a bad day one day but it might turn around the next day Hopefully. i'm not sure if that's what you're going for when you ask me but i mean well, i'm just thinking about trafalgar square now yeah, really yeah. even though the I pigeons are no longer there in my mind wow <laughs> there, there's re- really good answers to be fair i mean we've had other people just go make your bed first thing in the morning but i feel like these have been far far have, better oh absolutely um but I want to say thank you guys. Thank you so much for coming along. Oh, I hope you've enjoyed you. things um, with us. As I said before, it's been eye-opening for us and just a pleasure to speak to you all about something that's so important. Thank really you interesting. So thank pleasure. you. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting Cheers. Rule number one. Well, I have to say, considering I wasn't actually present in the room for that, I actually learned a lot. Yeah, it was really, it was really, really I interesting. I can imagine you did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is that supposed to mean, Will? I think there's some, is there, is there some bees? I mean, you get off your chest here, is there? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, look, that definitely gives people a lot to think about. I think, you know, it's important to take away from that, that we're not going to be able to do everything and get everything right all the time. But I think it's about thinking, right, what will work for us as a business, as a company, as an organization, and trying to make change where we can and realizing that it definitely is, I think it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I think really importantly that that was highlighted throughout that, the most important thing is to talk about it, to make sure that we are bringing up the discussion. There's nothing worse than living in ignorance. Which you do every day. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Uh, But no, listen, thank you very much for listening and it won't be too long before you'll hear us again for another episode of Rule Rule Number number One. One.